One thing I certainly love about this time of year, it's a built-in excuse for me to talk about my favorite movie, and I do it every year. Who knows my favorite movie? If you've been with us over the course of time, it's a wonderful life, and it becomes more my favorite every year, okay? So there's no talking me out of it at this point, y'all. Part of what makes it such a great film is that it features a great villain. We all know, if you've seen the movie, you know Henry Potter, old man Potter, who is the richest person in Bedford Falls. We know how he became so rich. It was because he is ruthless and cunning. He doesn't care about anybody but himself. He never puts anybody else ahead of him. Well, this all reaches its tipping point about at the midpoint of the film on Christmas Eve when George Bailey comes to Potter in dire need. $8,000 is missing, and George is desperate. It seems that his fate now rests in Mr. Potter's hands. He even says it, you're the only one in this town that can help me. So the scurvy little spider, finally, finally, he's got George Bailey in his web. And of course, he takes this opportunity not to help him, but to mock him. And I've, I were, I've, I've refined to the best of my ability my Henry Potter voice, so y'all let me know how I do here. He says, look at you, miserable little clerk, crawling in on your hands and knees, begging for help. He is so thrilled to see George at his wit's end. Now, all the while, we, the viewers, we know something about this scenario that George doesn't know, that Mr. Potter has actually stolen that $8,000 and he's now leveraging it against George to arrest him for fraud. Now, when we see a villain like that, in a movie like that, we're actually meant to see a layer below what's on the surface. He's not just a bad guy. What Frank Capra, the director, is trying to show us here is that as Mr. Potter sits there on Christmas Eve, his heart is just as black and cold as it ever was. He is the antithesis of the Christmas spirit. Everything the season is supposed to represent, he is the opposite. Love and generosity and goodwill to men, Mr. Potter is none of those things. And you know, it's interesting, any Christmas story, just about any Christmas movie, carries this same theme. Somebody has lost or missed the true meaning of Christmas, and they need help finding it again, right? Love, joy, peace, giving, serving, putting others before yourself. Well, here's a question. Where did that true meaning of Christmas come from? I mean, what, where, how, where, how is it that we all decided, all over the world we decided, that this would be the season marked by loving and serving and joyful giving? Well, Disney didn't create that. Not Hallmark, not Macy's. There really is no secular reason that makes sense of this, why we all know it to be true and aspire to be this way. Now, y'all, the roots of the Christmas spirit come from the reality of the Christmas story. The roots of the Christmas spirit come from the reality of the Christmas story. And so I want us to see today a scripture that we don't often associate with Christmas. We're going to zero in on the Bethlehem story and the manger in these weeks to come. But today, I want us to consider that when Jesus entered into the world, he came with a certain kind of spirit about him that the Bible informs us on. We saw last week from Isaiah chapter 9 how God promised to bring light into the darkness by sending us a child, a son who would be born to us. Well, today, y'all, from Philippians 2, 
I want us to see this same gem from a different angle. And y'all, I'll just say as a little plug for reading your Bible, one of the great things about the Bible, we don't, there's never a place where we simply get the bullet point facts about Jesus. When the Bible speaks of Jesus, both Old Testament and New, it's like a great diamond that whenever you turn it, the light catches it in a slightly different way and exposes some new color, some new clarity and beauty. That's the way it is with our Bible. The more you read the Scripture, the more facets you see of how beautiful and wonderful Jesus really is. And this is one of those places here in Philippians 2. We get to see the Christmas story, as it were, but from a place we wouldn't expect. And so here we are in Philippians chapter 2. The, the Apostle Paul actually begins this Scripture with a command for us. Here's something we ought to do. Look at verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now that command all by itself is just wonderful, isn't it? I mean, think about how much different the world would look if everybody lived just like that without selfishness or conceit, but considering others more important than ourselves, the entire world would be transformed within the week if we all obeyed this command. But Paul doesn't stop with a command. He roots it. He roots this command in the very heart of Jesus. And what we end up with here is one of the great mountaintop scriptures in all the Bible. Look at verse 5 now. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. This is a scripture that in, in some sense takes us from top to bottom. And so let's follow Paul's guidance as he directs us here from top to bottom. He says, Jesus existed in the form of God. Maybe your translation says, Jesus being in very nature God. Now, y'all, there are many places in the Bible where God takes a man or a woman and anoints them with a special purpose or blessing uh, and the list is long and impressive. There's Moses and David, there's Deborah, Daniel, John the Baptist. We could go on. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus was not merely a man who was anointed by God. Jesus is in very nature God. He is of the same substance and essence as God. And so all of the immeasurable attributes that are true of God, are also true of Jesus, the Son. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is all-powerful. He's unchanging. He's all-knowing and all the rest. Those things are just as true of Him as they are true of God, the Father. Paul goes into even more detail on this in his letter to the Colossians. As he speaks of Jesus, this is from Colossians 1. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
All things have been created through Jesus and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. There's, you're not going to find any loftier language probably in all the Bible. And so, y'all, it might help us this morning to, to reckon with this. Our perception of Jesus should not begin in the manger. That's the first image we have of him as he comes to earth as one of us. Yes, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But we don't start there as if Jesus started there. He didn't. Jesus did not begin in the manger. Jesus is eternal. When we speak of Jesus, we're speaking directly of God in all his glory, his power, his majesty, his authority, and his perfection. That's Jesus. I've heard somebody say it like this. It doesn't matter how high and lofty your vision, your view of Jesus is. It's probably not quite high enough. He's greater than we can conceive or imagine. And see, that's what makes a scripture like this so utterly amazing. It's not just understanding the glory and greatness of Jesus. But look again at verse 6 with me. It says, Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What this means is that Jesus, he didn't view his own divine glory as something to be seized and held onto for his own advantage. He didn't hold on to it with pride or with selfishness, verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Christmas. Right there in verse 7, this is Christmas. Not as we typically think of it, perhaps. But Jesus, that baby in the manger, this is Jesus emptying himself, the scripture tells us. Or if you have an NIV Bible, he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Y'all, it's okay for us to acknowledge this, even in church, that at least from a purely human perspective, this is absurd. It's absurd that the divine and eternal creator of everything would make himself into a little baby. And not just a baby, but Paul tells us that he was a bond servant. This is a person who willingly takes on a low position in order to serve everybody else. Throughout the centuries, there have always been people who have tried to deny the Incarnation. This idea that God has become human. And typically the argument is not, well, God couldn't do that. The argument is that he wouldn't. Under no circumstances would the great glorious God lower himself like this. No way would God stain himself by entering in as one of us at eye level to rub shoulders with us. No way. Would God take on human frailty and and, and darkness and dust and all the rest? But of course, that's the whole point. That's what makes the Christian message so unique and wonderful. Y'all, our hope today is not that God would shine his light at the world. Our hope is that God would come as light into the world. 
And those two things are as different as night and day. God doesn't just shine blessings from afar. He comes in. He gets his hands dirty. He becomes one of us. And this is why this doctrine here of the incarnation is so precious and so necessary. Look, y'all, at verse 8 now. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Here's the good news of the gospel, that God in all his glorious perfection took on flesh, real flesh and blood, and dwelled among us. And that Jesus, the God-man, lived the perfect life, completely satisfying the righteousness of God for us. And he also died on a cross, suffering condemnation for us, for our sins in our place. This is how God, in his wisdom, arranged it all. God refused to leave us to ourselves, lost in the dark. Instead, God came as the light. And y'all, Jesus did not leave us to die in our sins. Instead, he died for our sins. And again, this this shocks our system if we're willing to really think about it. Jesus, rather than leaving us to die in our sins, he died himself for our sins. It's so central to our understanding, the Christian message. Jesus didn't just die on a cross, but in his dying, he actually suffered the penalty, the judgment for our sins so that we who now trust in him are never condemned Because on the cross, Jesus was condemned in our place. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now let's revisit Henry Potter here for just a moment. Would you with me? Y'all, that scene that I described earlier, where Potter sits behind his desk and George is sniveling and desperate in front of him, he mocks George and then he calls the police as George runs out the door. That's basically the last we ever see of him. Except when George comes back around and bangs on the window to wish him a Merry Christmas, he says, Happy New Year to you in jail, as he's so pleased to see him suffer. Y'all, back when the movie was first released in the mid-40s, audiences did not like the fact that we don't get to see Mr. Potter get what's coming to him. In the movie, he never faces judgment or punishment for his wickedness. I mean, what what about the $8,000 he stole? What about all the people he defrauded in Bedford Falls over the years? We don't know what happens to him. And so folks who watched the movie initially, they cried foul over this because their moral sense of of justice had not been satisfied. They didn't get to see the bad guy suffer. People like Mr. Potter should get what's coming to them. They should be cut down to size. They should pay for their sins. See, in the end, the good guy, George Bailey, he he gets lifted up and celebrated as he should. But Mr. Potter, he should have been crushed. And we should have had the pleasure of watching him humiliated. That's the only way for a story like that to be resolved. The high and the mighty should be brought down low. Maybe you've watched that movie and you felt that too. What happens to Mr. Potter? I want to see him get his just desserts. But y'all, this is another place where the gospel of Jesus shocks us and surprises us. And ultimately, I hope it delights us. I want want us to look at these verses again. We just looked at them, but but come back with me now to verses 5 through 7, Philippians 2. 
let's, let's see this now from another angle, from another facet. Have this attitude in yourselves, Paul says, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The command to us is what? Humility. And that makes sense. Because for us, if we're honest at least, if we know our own hearts, pride is such a festering problem for every human being. It's it's perhaps the deepest of all of our problems. And it's been an issue from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, ever since. Humans have always wanted to exalt themselves. Our reach exceeds our grasp. We want to put ourselves above everybody else. We even want to put ourselves above God. And that's sinful, yes, of course, but it's also irrational, isn't it? Because if we know ourselves, we're so small. We're so limited and finite. We're just little ignorant creatures. We're not meant to live as the center of the universe. And so for us, humility is not just a good thing. It's the right thing. It's the correct way for us to live. We are small. We are not great. We are ignorant. We are not ultimately wise. We are sinful. We are not truly good. We ought to be humble. Now, serious question. What reason would Jesus have to be humble? What reason would Jesus have to regard anyone as more important than him? Jesus is, by definition, the actual center of the universe. We may like to think of ourselves that way. He actually is. He is the most important person in all creation that ever was or ever will be. What reason, what good reason would Jesus have to empty himself and humble himself? See, you and I, we have a thousand reasons why we ought to be humble. We're small and we are sinful. Y'all, this, this comes home to me frequently, and I wish it weren't so, but it's true. Even yesterday, I, I'm, I'm the assistant coach of a 10-year-old basketball team, assistant coach. My job is to just make sure the kids stay hydrated. And here I am yesterday morning making a fool of myself, getting all upset over dribbling and turnovers and rebounds, getting on to the kids. Not, I not, wasn't being very pastoral, I'll just be honest about it. Some of y'all were here. Some of y'all were, were in the gym. You, you saw me. Shameful behavior. Why? Because I'm full of pride. I can't handle losing. I, it, 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 it challenges me at my core to not be good enough, even as an assistant for a 10-year-old team. I'm a sinner. I have every reason in the world to be humble. There's a thousand ways it shows up in my life, potentially every day. Jesus has none. Jesus has no reason at all to be humble. There's nothing lacking or deficient in him that he should be ashamed of. There's no sinful pride in Jesus that he must repent of. He's perfect. God is the only person in existence who has no need at all to be humble. 
And yet here he is with pure and perfect humility coming from the very center of his heart and lying in a manger. He's so humble that he pours himself out considering us as more important than him. When Paul tells us to be humble, he says, have the same attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus emptied himself and took on flesh, born in a manger. He humbled himself to take on a cross and die. When we think about Mr. Potter, or frankly, when I look at my own life, I deserve to be cut down to size. I need to be humbled in my sin. Jesus didn't. And yet here we have the opposite of every great story you've ever read or watched or heard. You have the hero, rather than being exalted, you have the hero being punished. You have the one who deserves all the honor and praise and exaltation, receiving what the Mr. Potters of the world had earned and deserved. You have Jesus Christ dying for sinners. Why did he do that? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. By faith in Jesus, we who are poor, lost, and helpless, we may become eternally rich in the grace of God because we have a Savior who willingly impoverished Himself to forgive our sins and bring us to God. And see, it's, y'all, it's during this great season of Advent that we have the, the joy of standing in this in-between place We all at once, we get to look back on the incarnation, a real event. It really happened. And Jesus Christ, who lived and then died on the cross and was buried in the grave and rose from the dead, and still today we sit in this in-between because we're looking ahead also to His glorious return. We see that He has come, but He's coming again. We get to look back and look forward all at the same time. And Paul tells us right here in this Scripture what we have to look forward to. Philippians 2, look at verse 9. For this reason also, because of his humility and obedient death, for this reason, God highly exalted him. Here's the exaltation. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus doesn't remain in the manger. He doesn't remain on the cross. Thank God, especially, he didn't remain in the grave. The one who humbled himself has now been highly exalted. He will forever be the focal point of all worship, Paul tells us. He will be judge and ruler He will make all things new, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and everyone, everyone in the end will confess him as Lord to the glory of God. The scripture says of us that we who have trusted in Jesus will be to the praise of his glory 
forever. And that's good news. He who humbled himself for us has now been exalted to the highest place where he will rule forever. And therefore, we are secure forever as those who belong to him by his grace. Now, y'all, at the end of my favorite movie, there's that most famous scene, I'm sure you're so familiar with it by now, where where poor, discouraged George, he's finally realized the, the value of his life. And so now there he is surrounded by friends and family who have rushed to meet him and in his need, his brother Harry holds up a glass to give that unforgettable toast. He says, to my big brother George, the richest man in town. And we take perhaps from that scene a lot of wonderful application. I mean, we see on display the value of friendship and love and loyalty and community and so on. But there's a message in that scene, maybe it's, it's a little hidden, um, it's become clear to me over the couple of hundred times I've, I've seen the movie, and maybe this is just my imagination, but you, you go back and watch it this year and see if you agree with me. As all the people pour into the house on Christmas Eve, and they're giving so generously and joyfully, there's such a vivid display of the Christmas spirit, better than perhaps any movie's ever pictured it. They're all singing. And do you remember the song they sing? Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Where do we get such lofty ideas like charity and humility and mercy and joyful sacrifice? Y'all, these are not born in the heart of man but in the heart of God. And so the Christmas story is is not ultimately about us reaching up high in an effort to be our very best this season. The Christmas story is about God coming down low, the rich becoming poor for our sake, coming to us humbly in the person of Jesus, giving us his very best so that we may have life in him. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you might grant us eyes to see and ears to hear this very stunning and unexpected message of your grace. That Jesus Christ, the only truly perfect and glorious one, that Lord, humility would not be one of his attributes. It just simply is not necessary. And yet it is more, the most perfect and pure and precious humility there ever was. Lord, center, central to his heart that brought him to earth as one of us, that brought him to the manger, that took him to the cross to become our bondservant. Lord, treating us as if we were somehow more important than him because he loves us. 
Father, I, I pray that, that this morning, Lord, we, I, I, don't, I, just, I don't know that I'll ever fully grasp that wonderful message. But I do pray, Father, that you would grant me, grant us, Lord, a, a fullness of heart. That we, we see, Lord, not only that you love us, but the extent, the lengths you were willing to go in your love for us, the demonstration of your love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. And Lord, that this would change us as, as the Apostle Paul speaks it, Lord, that this would instantly make us a a humbler people, a less selfish people, a more others-centered people. Because we see in Christ the perfect embodiment of these things, Lord, given to us. We're the recipients of this grace. And so I do pray, Father, this morning that we would, be, we, we would embody it as well, Lord, as Christ has done for us, so we would now do for one another. But Lord, I pray that for, for your church this morning, that this is, this is not something we attain uh, through our own effort merely. We really must receive your grace. We really must see Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Lord, make us humble this morning. Humble enough to confess our sin, that where pride rears its ugly head in our lives in so many different ways, Father, that we would recognize it and repent and turn to Christ. Humble us, Lord, and and helping us to see, Lord, that we are not the center of all things. We are not entitled to anything. Father, we are weak and needy. We need you. And Lord, you have more than abundantly provided your grace, your power, your majesty, your light in our darkness, your strength in our weakness, Father. You've sent your Son. Father, humble us that we might look away from ourselves and look only to Christ to be our life and our hope and our salvation today. Lord, thank you that he is more than sufficient, this little helpless baby, This bondservant is our Savior forever. And we will confess him as Lord forever with great joy because he laid his glory by that we no more may die. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.